I invite you to join with me in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, in your word, this day, yes, indeed, you challenge us. You confront us, Lord, with our sin, our rebellion, and our sluggish hearts. But Lord, we pray that today by this, your word, your Holy Spirit would increase within us a joyful faith, a, a joyful response of mercy and grace because of your love for us. And now may these words of this preacher's mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The word of God before us this morning is that gospel reading from Luke chapter 16. I invite you to have your bulletin open there because we're going to make reference to a few things throughout. Particularly, I want to begin at the end of that reading where Luke writes for us, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Dear fellow redeemed, I will confess to you this morning that this is perhaps uh, one of the, the top three or four passages of the Bible that are the most challenging to understand. It's challenging because it appears on the surface that Jesus is commending a guy for being dishonest. And we know that God is a God of truth to everyone. It's not like God is going to say to this group of people, do this and, or do X and Y is bad. And to this group of people, God's going to say Y is good and X is bad. That's not God. God can't say one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. And we know that Scripture is quite clear on a few things. For example, on many things I should say, for one, okay, the seventh commandment, You shall not, the seventh commandment, it's not you shall not aluminum, but you shall not, you shall not steal. Okay, bad joke. Yes, I do know that. All right, you shall not steal. We know the explanation to the seventh commandment is all about, you know, not taking someone else's possessions in a dishonest way, not going about any kind of chicanery or trickery. Uh, well, Jesus tells this parable about a guy who's shrewd. Did you catch the particulars there? You know, he tells a story that seems to commend someone for doctoring, cooking the books. Oh, you owe the master 100 measures of wheat? Just make it 50. Oh, you owe him 100 measures of oil? Just make it 80. We'll be good. How can that be? We even heard in the Old Testament reading from Amos chapter 8, right, about how God was saying how detestable it is with some of these practices of, of, uh, you know, shrinking the ephah and making the shekel greater. 
the ephah was the measuring system for wheat, and the shekel was the paying for it. It's kind of like, you know, you go to a gas station and you fill up your car or your truck with gas. There's a little sticker on every gas pump, right? You know what that sticker says? Something like, uh, you know, the Indiana State Department of uh, Ways and Measurements or something like that. It's a verification that when this pump says you have paid for one gallon of gas, you have actually received one gallon of gas. Imagine how terrible it would be if you paid for a gallon of gas but only got three quarters of a gallon. That'd be pretty tricky, wouldn't it? Be pretty greasy and slimy of the business owner selling you the gas. Now, perhaps now you're starting to raise some more questions like, well, this is really good stuff. What's going on? Well, I'll confess to you that over the years, this is only the second time I've preached on this parable because I've always liked to just skip over it and forget about it. In fact, this a long a number of months ago when we were planning the, the worship schedule, uh, we were supposed to have a guest preacher here today, a retired pastor from St. Louis for this outfit called Food for the Poor Ministry. <coughs> Excuse me. To encourage us about you know, uh, not only providing for the physical needs, but the spiritual needs of the poor around the world and something. I thought, this is great. We got this difficult parable. Well, then he called me on Wednesday and said he has COVID, so he can't come. So, okay, we're back on deck. So I thought, all right, let's dig in. Because I came across a Bible commentator who helps explain this. Because you see, we're looking at this parable through 21st century American eyes. And we need to be able to go back into the first century Middle Eastern world and hear this parable from that perspective. And my prayer is that as we do that, the Holy Spirit can open our hearts and minds to see something rather astonishing that Jesus says. To, yes, confront us with our sin and see something greater. So pull out your bulletins there. Follow along with me. All right, we're going to kind of go through this little bit by little bit. Verse 1. Jesus also, oh wait, also. Do you know the context? Remember what's been going on. Just last week, we had Luke 15, the, the first part of the chapter. We had two beautiful little parables of Jesus, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And what was the point of all that? That Jesus seeks and saves us. Jesus seeks us out. We're the ones that are lost. Then we skipped over uh, what we read a number of months ago in the season of Lent, the parable of the prodigal son. The father who has two sons, and the great debate is, okay, which one really was lost in the end? The one who came back or the older one who's kind of being stubborn, and, and Jesus doesn't finish the story for us? Does he come around, all right? Again, the joy over one who is lost being found. So in that context, Jesus, oh, and also remember last week we heard the religious folk were grumbling at Jesus because he welcomed sinners and ate with them. He was hanging out with the wrong crowd, the people said. 
Keep that in mind. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. The first thing to note about this, this is not a banking parable. This is not in any way a parable about how to run a bank or how to run a business. This is a parable about a landowner, the manager of his land, and all of the people who rent from him. That's what this parable is about. Verse 2, the, the master calls the manager and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. What's going on here is literally he says, turn the books over. You're fired. Now, in the Middle Eastern world of the first century, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one is that no one will know about this firing for three days. It was customary that the one who was fired would have three days to offer up rebuttal. To say, you know, did you look carefully at the people I got to work with? Do you see the kind of the schmucks around me? I mean, good grief, if you think things are bad now, just think of how bad they would be if I didn't try and make it better, as good as it is. Okay? There would be three days where the firing was not made public. The second thing to note is that <clears throat> from this point on, even though no one's going to know it for three days, nothing that the manager does is going to be legally binding on the master. The master has fired the schmuck. He's done. He's got three days to turn the books in. And nothing he does from that point on is legally binding upon the master. Let's keep going. Verse three. <coughs> the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, beautiful little thing about this, okay, that last little phrase, receive me into their houses, that's a Middle Eastern term for I can get another job. All right? Notice that the manager doesn't offer up any arguments. He doesn't enter into a give and take with the, uh, the master, which in Middle Eastern culture is unheard of. So this guy is basically saying, yeah, you know what? I'm guilty of sin. I admit it. I've cooked the books. I've mismanaged everything. And the beautiful thing, the way Jesus tells the story, he kind of gives you a little hint without giving any, any detail to the exact moment. Because in the story, he goes, well, the unjust manager goes, I know what I'll do. But he doesn't tell us yet what he's going to do. The guy's figured out a plan. He's figured out a plan 
about how to position his relationship with the master so that the master will be kind to him. Here's how it goes. Um, Verse 5, So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, remember, nobody knows the manager's been fired. And he summons one by one his master's debtors. He summons the renters from the property. He's the one in charge of managing it. So he he, uh, asked the renters to come in one by one. And now think about this. You're renting land from a master. The manager of the master's property calls you into the office. What are you expecting? You're expecting pay up, pal. (laughs) Come on. Today's the day of reckoning. Fork over the money. But what do they get? They get, oh, hey, you know what? Go ahead, take out your bill, scratch out your 100, you just owe 50. Oh, you don't owe 100 measures of oil anymore, you just owe 80. The shrewd manager is positioning relationship with his master in that the master is going to only have two options. When the master gets the books that have been cooked and realizes how cooked the books are, he can, oh, oh, by the way, what are the the, the, uh, renters going to feel about the landlord? They don't know the manager's been fired. All they know is the manager is telling them, hey, tell you what, you don't owe 100, you owe 50. You don't owe 100, you owe 80. They're going to think the landlord is the best guy ever. They're going to think, wow, is this guy kind and gracious. So, the, ma- the, the master has two options. He can either go back to every single debtor and go, okay, look, I'm sorry, but that manager I had, he was a schmuck, he was a moron, he was a thief and a thug. You really do owe me 100 measures of wheat, and you really do owe me 100 measures of oil. And everyone's going to look at him and go, you are the rudest person around. Or the master can recognize what the manager did. He had positioned the master in such a way that everyone regarded him as gracious and kind and wonderful, forgiving debts. He's the hero of the community. He will accept it, and the unjust manager might just be able to get a job with some other landowner because 
landowner Joe Blow down the road will see, look at how this guy's former employer is loved by his community. You see, Jesus isn't commending the dishonesty of the manager. He's commending the intelligence of the manager to recognize he had only one alternative. And that was to throw himself at the mercy of the master. To position the master in such a way that he was so loved, he was so well received, so well regarded, there was no way the master could do anything else other than be kind to the manager. Who was Jesus telling this parable to? His disciples the religious leadership folk of the day. Jesus says, verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. These wicked heathen can figure it out that their only way out of a tough spot is to trust in the mercy of the master. Well, why are you disciples? Why are you religious leadership folk? Why are you so sluggish and slow of heart to trust this master's mercy? Why is it that, that we are so slow to recognize ourselves as the ones who need rescue? Why are we so slow to let go of all of the great, wonderful religious stuff that we have done? Why are we so slow to let go of the clipboard with the check mark list, <clears throat> the, the, the listed check mark off of all the things we have accomplished for our Savior? Why are we so sluggish? to simply just throw ourselves at the mercy of the master. You see, that's what this parable is about. It's about holding up a mirror to us, if you will. A mirror that shows in so many ways People, when they are confronted with their sin, when they're confronted with their, the sheer ugliness of who they are and what they have done, they're ready to receive God's mercy in Christ. But sometimes we who maybe should know better are just so slow. We still want some kind of a, you know, a pat on the back for who we are. We want some kind of a thumbs up like, man, you tried really hard and you did a good job. We want a, some kind of a, a golden recognition of the great, wonderful things we have done in the name of Jesus. Instead of just recognizing 
we've really screwed up. And there is only one way out. Trust the master's mercy. Next week, Jesus tells another parable in addition to this that doubles down on this very truth. Trust the master's mercy. In his name, amen.